Friday, May 3rd, 2019 edition of On Iowa Politics. This week on the podcast, Joe Biden makes it official and returns to Iowa. The Iowa legislature puts a wrap on its work for 2019. And the state auditor goes on a town hall tour. Hello, everyone. I'm Aaron Murphy, the State Capitol Bureau Chief for Lee Enterprises. With me today are Thomas Nelson of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Aaron. And also Gazette columnist Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. You can find On Iowa Politics each week on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. First up this week, Joe Biden made the expansive field of Democratic presidential candidates of legal drinking age when his announcement brought the field to 21. A good thing, too, because I suspect before too long, all of us watching this overcrowded primary are going to need a drink. That yeah. field, by the way, turned 22 only a few days later when Colorado U.S. Senator Michael Bennett joined the race. Um, and it will probably be 23 before too long. Uh, Montana Governor Steve Bullock is all but a lock to join the fray eventually. But back to the former vice president. Biden made his Iowa trip shortly after announcing over the last weekend. This week, he made a two-day swing through eastern and central Iowa with events in Cedar Rapids, Dubuque, Des Moines, and Iowa City. I was at the first event in Cedar Rapids and got to spend some time with the vice president. He said despite his age, uh, as a reminder, he would turn 78 just after Election Day next year. Biden said he is ready for the rigors of a primary campaign over the next year, and he promised that he will not be outworked in Iowa. He put on that same old Biden charm we've all come to expect. He introduced himself to me as Mrs. Finnegan's son and grew animated when he became passionate about a topic. During our interview, at one point, he had a ball cap in his hand and he slapped my knee as he uh, to put a punctuation mark on what he was saying at the time. His message during the interview and, and in his remarks from that Cedar Rapids event were very heavy on appeals to the middle class or, or the working class. Um, and when I talked to the people in the crowd there, it was kind of interesting to get a mixture of people who um, had some concerns about Biden's age, especially uh, when there's younger candidates in the field. Um, but there are also others who said they feel Biden just has to be the Democratic nominee because they think he is the only candidate in the field of Democrats who can defeat President Donald Trump. John, the vice president, was right in your backyard, among other stops. So what was your impressions of the um, Biden's first post-announcement trip to Iowa? Well, I, I think it was appropriate that you announced, that you talked about the 21 candidates in the drinking age, because I think a lot of Joe Biden supporters see him as sort of the designated driver of the, of the presidential field. He's the guy that's going <laughs> to steer the car back on the road, maybe, and, and put things back in order with, with his experience and... Uh, you know, his message was pretty much what you'd expect. He talked about, uh, you know, uh, Americans that aren't realizing the American dream anymore. And he talked about the restoring the backbone of the nation, which I think he was referring to our infrastructure problems, which the president promised to, to fix and hasn't gotten around to yet. Although we've had a lot of infrastructure weeks over the last few years, so any day now. But, uh, and, you know, he talked about... Uh, unifying the nation, and I think that plays into this idea that, you know, you can't unify the nation unless you defeat the president, and so he, you know, has positioned himself as someone who can talk to the voters in those kind of Rust Belt and Midwestern states 
through Iowa's and Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, where uh, President Trump was so successful and and basically won the election by, by winning those states narrowly. So that's his message, and a lot of his supporters are talking about that they, as you mentioned, that he's the guy to do it, that he's the guy to beat Donald Trump. And, you know, I think his, his main opponents at this point are, are a generational opponent because you've got younger voters that seem to be more interested in other candidates if the polling is any uh, indication. And also his own, you know, sort of foot-and-mouth disease. I mean, this this week he, he was making remarks sort of bragging up America and talked about how China isn't any real competition to us, which raised some eyebrows and, and launched a thousand opinion pieces by, you know, columnists, who, which I can understand that that kind of low-hanging fruit can get you pretty excited when you're, a <laughs> when you're an opinion columnist. So a lot of folks were there to immediately to question him and say, no, in fact, China is a competitor. So, uh, yeah, it was, I think overall, though, it was a good launch. It was positive. He, he sort of was, was tied up and tangled in some things when he first officially joined the race and in the weeks before that. But I think here in Iowa, I think he was, he was on pretty firm footing. Yeah, um, uh, I, I would agree. Uh, it seems like he was in the news for maybe um, – that's a good point. He was in the news for maybe some reasons he would have preferred not to be in that he seemed to put just enough uh, distance between uh, that news cycle and his announcement where he, where he didn't hear um, a, a, a lot of that stuff uh, during this week's trip. Um, Thomas, uh, Joe Biden didn't make a Cedar Valley stop on this trip anyways. I'm sure he will, will eventually, but uh, um, just wanted to give you a chance to, if you had any thoughts to add, uh, presumably from consuming all that wonderful Gazette and Lee coverage of, of Joe Biden's trips over, over the last couple of days. And what awesome coverage it was! But one thing I think um, uh, the one the one thing I kind of noticed is not so much something I don't know whether that came out during his visit here, but he was endorsed by the International Firefighters Association recently, and there have been a couple pieces talking about how the union vote is going to end up being a major part of this election. And I think when it comes to Waterloo. You'll never find, you know, Waterloo, I think, in general, is one of those places that you could call a union town. Absolutely. And um, I think overall, his uh, his message kind of rings clear with people who are, you know, that, you know, be able to put um, workers first to a certain extent is kind of ringing with Waterloo residents here, which is probably why he's able to have such broad support. But the the name we're seeing more often than not actually probably in the Cedar Valley area, at least in the Waterloo Cedar Falls area is probably more Bernie Sanders. And I think that seems to be the person that has a lot more of a, of a the democratic base here excited than anyone else. Yeah. And it's, and it's interesting. You note that, especially when you talk about unions and, and, and this is going to be interesting to see how this plays out because Biden and Sanders um, have, uh, from what I understand, just kind of slightly different takes on trade in particular, and and, and that could impact that race for the union vote that you were uh, talking about. Uh, that that may draw some lines um, in, in that um, uh, debate, and and as the candidates, especially those two, seek that the union support. So, so that'll be interesting to watch as it plays out, and and obviously gives us uh, plenty of fodder for uh, future. Uh, uh, episode of the, the podcast here. Uh, I want to move on um, 
just as um, we were recording this past week, the Le- Iowa legislature was finishing its work on the 2019 session. Uh, they crammed in some long days and late nights in order to finish, um, even use some rare Friday and Saturday sessions. As I said, uh, we usually record the podcast on Friday morning, so they were still working on the session at this point last week, uh, wrapped it up on Saturday afternoon. This year's session could remember could be remembered as much for what didn't pass, like legislation to restore felons' voting rights, provide birth control through a pharmacist, or a new fee on solar energy users, or an anti-abortion constitutional amendment. Could be remembered just as much for those that didn't pass as for what did, like legalized sports betting, which was a big thing. Industrial hemp is a new crop for Iowa farmers and a measure designed to limit local property tax increases. Todd, speaking of that rush to the finish, you wrote about some of the proposals that popped up rather suddenly in those final hectic few days. Is that what will stand out most to you about this year's session? Well, I think it sort of colors the the, the view of the session as a whole. I mean, I as I wrote in that piece, I'd, I'd sort of entertain the idea of writing something about that some of that stuff that didn't happen, as you 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 mentioned, and, and kind of the fact that in the House, especially, there seemed to be some restraint shown on some issues like the. There were a lot of election changes that the Senate passed that the House didn't want anything to do with. It appeared at one point like the judicial selection changes were going to freeze in place and not go anywhere. It, uh, there were just sort of a, a series of bills that were that looked sort of partisan and and maybe in the last two years might have been shoved through, you know, with with sort of limited debate and and sort of a rush job. But that didn't happen. So I thought that was good. But then the last weekend came and. And uh, you know the, the the legislature didn't exactly wrap itself in glory in the, in those final hours. They they you know they 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 threw amendments to budget bills. They did some things that they couldn't get done. I don't think through the the full legislative process, which is always a problem. They they passed some limits on using public funds, Medicaid, other insurance funds paid by public dollars for uh, for surgery and medical procedures that transgender Iowans would. Would, would you know are are seeking to have uh, have done, uh, which it comes on the heels of a, what was considered a landmark Supreme Court ruling for transgender rights in the state, and so that was seen as as uh, as something that at the very least you know should have been debated in full and gone through the committee process, and they had a chance for people affected by this to have their say, not something jammed through in the last weekend. They they uh, prohibited Planned Parenthood from getting. Uh, uh, sex education dollars. They they went ahead and changed the judicial nominating process again through an amendment to a budget bill in the last few hours of the session, which you know is 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 sort of not the sort of, not the kind of forum that you would like for for making far-reaching changes to to institutions that have been around the state for almost for more than 50 years. So uh, yeah, and, and they limited debate on on some of those measures. So it's you know it seemed like things were looking a little better this year, and then. They sort of reverted back to what we'd seen in the previous two years, which is uh, making major policy changes without a whole lot of debate or public input. And I thought that that you know that's going to color the view of the whole session the way it ended. Yeah, and uh, another one. <laughs> it's easy to forgive uh, leaving uh, off uh, <laughs> one item on what became a pretty long list. There was the uh, language restricting the attorney general's. Um, ability to enter into multi-state lawsuits. That's another one that was put into a budget bill at the end there. Um, Todd, I wanted to follow up with you real quick. So, so it, when, when 
when we ask legislatures about that, about and you touched on it, you know, is this the best way to govern by putting these things, A, putting policy into a budget bill, B, doing it literally in the last 72 hours of a session where there's not as much time to debate um, and, and let the public weigh in. Um, what we often hear in response is, well, look, all of these are issues that we've talked about before, that we've had a bill on. Um, so it's not like it's new. It's not like it's a surprise. Um, is that is that a fair response to that criticism? Oh, you know, not really. I mean, it's a lot of issues came up earlier in the session that, that got sort of the full legislative process treatment, and I think that's the way it's supposed to be. This idea that, you know, maybe in caucus behind closed doors they've been hashing out an issue for the whole session, that doesn't mean that Iowans have understood clearly what they intend to do about it. And I think that's the problem is that, sure, you might know that there are Republican lawmakers that have misgivings about allowing Medicaid to pay for uh, transgender medical procedures, but where was the bill? Where was the language? Where was the actual proposal? It didn't exist until the final hours of the legislative session. And then when it did exist, I believe they limited debate on it. So, you know, I understand that that's something they may have been talking about in their caucus and among members, but that's not something that the people of Iowa were in on. Yeah. Um, Thomas, uh, not just this last uh, rush to the finish, but the session as a whole, um, what were the issues that uh, captured some, uh, a lot of the attention in the Cedar Valley uh, this year? What, what stood out to you during this session? Well, um, well, there were a lot of, I mean, overall, there were a lot of things that I think stood out to me. But what I feel like impacted uh, what, uh, Cedar Valley uh, residents the most would probably be the cap on spending for energy efficiency, the two, I believe, what, the 2% cap on revenues for energy efficiency for electric utilities kind of played a big, you know, uh, is going to play a role out here because that's something that's uh, kind of like becoming a trend in a lot of uh, in a lot of uh, energy utilities in the Cedar Valley area in Cedar Falls, for instance, and absolutely in Waterloo. And I think that's going to that that'll end up playing a role later on, um, probably when looking at more of a city government and city government budget and how that and how that plays out. But as well, something really minor, probably in uh, a drop in the bucket in the legislative session, but. Uh, kind of uh, heard loudly in Waterloo was the um, the pulling out of uh, the ability for someone to, uh, for mobile uh, the pulling out of uh, a bill language that would allow a mobile barber shop uh, specifically because there's a local barber that is hoping to be able to go from you know place to place and you know uh, provide haircuts for people and who are disadvantaged and who are homebound, but as well to be able to just go and offer it sort of like a mobile grooming service, pet grooming service, except for humans and the top of their heads. So, and that kind of getting pulled out is, has kind of been, you know, that, that's kind of going to reverberate. I mean, that's, that was a, a popular, you know, the barber is a popular barber in the Waterloo area. And if he's not able to do that, he's told me, uh, in an interview that he's actually would consider leaving Iowa. And I believe that legislation, legislation was pulled out by Senator Brad Zahn when it got to his uh, state government committee. So that'll be interesting to see 
whether or not that comes up or whether and whether or not uh, Senator Zahn's objection continues in the next session. Yeah, just goes to show you never know what uh, kind of legislation will impact uh, um, uh, Iowans. And uh, I tell you, the one uh, the one that caught me off guard was the whole big debate over the uh, land sales, and and it got into conservation and water quality um, mm. uh, concerns about those projects uh, versus um, people who said farmers are having a hard time. That that was just one of those bills that you didn't see that full-throated debate coming that that happened uh, um, um, and Thomas with a few more examples there of uh, legislation that may fly under the radar but it um, uh, has a real impact on people all right finally this week state auditor Rob Sand has begun his town hall tour bringing an exciting world of auditing to an Iowa cafe near you Iowans are accustomed to their political candidates and elected leaders doing town hall tours. This is, after all, the home of the 99-county full grassley. But it's new territory for the state auditor. Sand, who was just elected this past fall, has said the town halls are designed to engage Iowans and local leaders to develop and encourage best practices in government efficiency. His detractors, Republicans mainly, have claimed that Sand, the Democrat, is just using the office and these town halls to further his political career. Thomas, you wrote this week about Sand and, and these town halls, and, and the auditor talked about exactly that. What did he say about the allegations that these town halls are nothing more than a political stunt? Well, um, you know, he, he, was, he was, I think he was a little bit taken aback by that, but um, I think um, his, his main statement that he told me was, uh, can't an elected official talk to constituents about new initiatives without it being suggested that it's in some way bad? Um, is, and, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, he, he, he's kind of, he, he kind of looks at his job, at least on the record, he looks at his job as a very nonpartisan, as just something to, you know, make sure that he's getting, you know, auditing done. But so it's kind of an interesting to see his, his reaction with that. Um, but as well, I think you know he he's he's trying to tap into people to I guess recognize the position a little bit more and make it not just one of those positions that pe- you know people kind of just you know sweep under the rug. Similar to maybe what um, oh, Bill Northey was able to do, sort of with the Secretary of Agriculture's office, with um, and that people have never will never be able to do with the State Treasurer's office. So. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, and I think his main goal has been to kind of publicize his public innovations and f- efficiency proposals uh, that people can go on his website and, and let let people know ideas for local and county governments to be able to um, basically find more efficient ways uh, to run their governments. One example he cited when I talked to him was about um, how Muscatine and Sioux City are taking – um, natural gas kind of create methane created uh, from their waste and then capturing that as opposed to burning it off and then adding that to, you know, basically going back to energy efficiency, using that for energy efficiency right there. So it certainly, it certainly is interesting. Um, and if he is, if he's, if he's going about this for political means and just not being public about it, he's probably going about it the right way because, He's answering criticism in the most 
uh, diplomatic way, and as well, uh, he's he, he's continuing to try to do uh, do what I guess you would think a state auditor is supposed to do. All right, thanks for that, Thomas. Uh, Todd, uh, the auditor insists these are not political events, but hey, we here. We're on a political podcast. We are political beasts, so let's talk about Rob Sands' political future. Democrats still need someone to run against U.S. Senator Joni Ernst next year. Is he their guy? Or might he keep his powder dry for a run in 2024 instead, where he could choose to run for anything from a potential open-seat U.S. Senate race, if Chuck Grassley retires, or governor? Or maybe even Attorney General, if his old boss Tom Miller retires. What, what's what's uh, on Rob Sand's political future agenda? I uh, I tend to think he's going to keep his powder dry. I I think he you know I, he he clearly is you know wants to do some things in the auditor's office, and I think he he knows that doing the things he wants to do are going to raise his his profile in the state. I mean these these town hall meetings, regardless of the true purpose, are raising his profile and. I think you know, watching him on social media and and watching him basically operate as auditor. I mean, it's clear he he wants to be out there and out front, and he wants to have opinions on issues and wants to be relevant. Which you know, that's not always the uh, the state auditor and relevancy are not always are not always uh, you know together. <laughs> so, uh, but but it's going to take him a little while. And and I think he did. You know, he ran. You know, it's tempting because he ran a great campaign for auditor. I think a lot of people conceded that. Even a lot of Republicans said that, you know, this is this is a guy that's got some skills and his, his ads were were good and and I think he you know came off as a as a serious but amicable public servant which people like but uh, I I don't know that that translates right away into a U.S. Senate run against arguably a, a tough to beat incumbent uh, and you've already heard you know the the rumors here and there of, of candidates that have been or people that have been approached about running for Senate who have decided not to. I think Cindy Axney this week, the uh, congresswoman, said that she was going to run for re-election mm-hmm. to Congress and not run for Senate. So then if you're, if you're Rob Sandin, you end up getting in, you know, the Republicans will say, well, he was the fourth choice or something like that. So, so that doesn't put you on excellent footing right away. And I, I, think, he, I think he's playing a longer game. I think he's going to raise his profile and, and maybe look at some of those spots that you listed and, and uh, would, would conceivably in a few years be a, a pretty formidable candidate. All right, something to watch, and again, something to talk about on future episodes. But that's it for this edition of On Iowa Politics. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We certainly hope it was worth your time. If you like the show, tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher, and you can send fan mail to oniowapolitics at gmail.com. And as a reminder, you can find our work each and every week on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, City Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Muscatine Journal, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Natalie Brown will play us out this week. If you know a band or a talented Iowa musician who should be featured on our show, send us a sound file. For Thomas, Todd, and our producer, Stephen, I'm Aaron Murphy. Thank you all for listening.